Good morning, Evergreen. If you could turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're only tackling two verses this morning. Verses 14 and 15. And Adam and Eve had just sinned. They just had their shame exposed to them. And yet they would refuse to actually bear responsibility for it. That they would constantly try to seek to shift blame off of themselves. But they had heard God's word in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, that said that the wages of sin is death. They knew what was coming. Put yourself in their shoes. Hopeless, humiliated, being caught red-handed, knowing what their sins deserve, afraid, anxiety, maybe at what God is about to do and say, wrapped in fear is what their experience would be. And yet listen to the word that God speaks in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Imagine what the surprise would be for Adam and Eve as they sit there. They're the ones who sinned. They know that they are culpable. And they know that God could have dealt with them just as God is now dealing with Satan. Satan does not ask, or God does not ask Satan any questions. He does not try to provoke them to repentance. The only thing God says to Satan is a word of judgment. What his sins deserved. And in that word of judgment, the Satan did not receive any good news. He only received bad news. But this prophecy is being spoken in the presence of Adam and Eve who were sitting there hearing it. And what would they have heard? Well, what they would have heard is the bad news for the serpent in the midst of that is good news for them. How do you deal with your anxiety? What do you do with your shame and your guilt? Self-help gurus or self-help books seem to all kind of follow the same line that the Stoics of old used to tell people to do. Which is to focus yourself so not that which you cannot control, your circumstances, the things that happen to you, but instead seek to control your reaction to everything. That's the way that you can manage your guilt and your anxiety. If you feel bad, you can maybe manage that guilt by just expressing that, you know, I'm basically a good person who makes mistakes to lessen our sins, to lessen the shame of it. Maybe you can just deal with the feeling by taking medications 
that suppress those feelings. Maybe you just deal with the, the guilt by basically picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. God's word, when he addresses our guilt, our shame, our fear, our anxiety, deals with reality, not a suppression of it. And God never once in all of Scripture tells those who are anxious and fearful to look to ourselves, look to our own capabilities. Actually, for sinful humanity, our only hope is something that lies outside of us. It is something we can't control. It's God himself. They should have known this, right? They'd seen God's goodness, his kindness. They'd seen evidence upon evidence of God's graciousness, even in the way that he approached them, provoking them to confess their sins, to let their shame come before them, to humble themselves before the mighty God. The reality is, is all those who do not humble themselves before God will be humbled. They'll be humbled by God himself. You know, maybe the Christian life could be encapsulated by a phrase by Martin Luther, who also struggled with anxiety and depression. He said, when I look to myself, I cannot see how I could possibly be saved. But when I look to Christ, I cannot see how I could not possibly be saved. That's the nature of the gospel of God's free grace. That's the nature of Christianity. We are told and we're given every reason why we're not to look at ourselves and our capabilities for hope in life, dealing with our guilt, anxiety, or really any other problem. But we are directed to look to God and his capabilities and that we can see that even if we still have the feeling of doubt and feeling of anxiety, that if we look to God, all the reasons for our anxieties will be crushed. Specifically, when we look to the person of Christ and the clear image of God that we see in that. And that's what we're basically going to do this morning. We're going to look to God at who he is and how that should cure any anxieties that we have about the future, which surely Adam and Eve were suffering from right now. And we see that in what God shows, that he, what he can prove. We see in what he predicts, and we see that in what he promises. What God proves, what God predicts, and what he promises. First, what God proves. What does he do in this action of judgment on the devil? Well, ironically, we see that God sends a curse. And we know it's on Satan because Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 tells us what Steve just read. That this conflict that we experience in this world is really a spiritual conflict with spiritual forces who are at work. And that the devil was that ancient serpent that was used by Satan to deceive Adam and Eve. But he's the force behind it. 
Notice that his, the object of his curse is actually directed first and foremost at the serpent. It says, because he, God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I find this fascinating for a variety of reasons. I remember looking at uh, invertebrate zoology in college. My background was a biology major. And looking at uh, snake skeletons. And you know, what's really interesting about snake skeletons is that they do move on their belly. Literally, they use their ribs to slither, to move around. But you actually can see something that was lost on them. See, if you look at snake skeletons, you see there's a pelvic girdle, and there, or pelvic girdle, and there's a pectoral girdle. If you want to know what that means, it's the, it's, the te- it's the technical terms for the skeletal housing structures for holding limbs, holding arms, holding legs. See, one thing that everyone agrees with is that serpents at one time had legs, and now they don't. The difference is the explanation for how they lost them. That's fascinating to me. Not only that, but what, what does he tell the serpent? That he's going to put enmity between him and the woman. Even that we can see evidenced in nature. I was kind of shocked to find out that if you look at very statistics, no matter where you get them, there's different norm, num, numbers reporting different things. But if you look at the animals that kill the most people, mosquitoes is always at the top of the list, but really because they're the vector for disease. A mosquito does not kill anyone directly, it kills everyone indirectly. And they kill lots of people, they spread lots of disease. And other animals do it, they just don't do it as well as mosquitoes. But if you were to look at the animal that kills the most people, by far, it's snakes. BBC reported that in 2016, that the number three animal, besides because it listed human beings as animals that killed other human beings, which go figure. Number three, the top animal that actually directly killed people was snakes. It killed 75,000 people in 2016. The next one on that list, though, guys, is dogs, which killed 25,000 people, which, you know, I've already made one comment and got trouble for saying dogs aren't man's best friend, but I'm just going to lob that little piece of evidence. And I think it also just settles the debates that snakes are worse than spiders, too. But the reality is, is that when we look at the snake, what we know about him is he's simply a tool. Why is God cursing an instrument? The first thing that we need to know is what this says about animals. It doesn't mean that when we talk about human beings being above animals, the implication here should not be that we are free to abuse animals because God created them good. But what it does mean, the implication when we understand that human beings are not animals, but they are created in God's image, is the fact that they are above in worth, in dignity, in preciousness in God's sight. 
Exodus 21 tells us that if an ox kills a human being, you kill the ox. God is taking retribution on the instrument that caused damage to his beloved creation. But what we all know is it's not really about the serpent. What we have in the serpent is a visual, perpetual reminder that God proves he's able to humble anyone, everyone. How long does it take God to put Satan down on his belly? Make, knock the feet out from under him? It takes one single word. Eating dust is not something that snakes do. They don't literally, like they had their legs removed, they don't literally eat dust endured for their sustenance. Worms do, but snakes don't. The picture of eating dust is the picture of humiliating defeat. It's a picture, if you go look at uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 17, you see of what God does to the enemies. That God humiliates wicked people. And God is able to do it with a single word. And when we look at snakes who are on their bellies eating the dust of the earth, what we have is proof positive that God is able to humble even our strongest foe. Far, back in Mark chapter 3, we actually see that Jesus, when he talks about Satan, he doesn't treat him as this pushover. When he talks about himself in relation to Satan, he talks about Satan being a strong man who has bound people as his possession. The difference is, is that when Jesus talks about himself, he says, I am the stronger man who's able to go into the house of the strong man, bind him, and rob him of his possessions. See, our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our strength. You know, I'm constantly humbled by this. Constantly humbled by how weak I am in and of myself. Everyone has their probably, well, not everyone. Everyone in my generation seems to have some sort of social media addiction. And what we seem to suffer for, uh, from is that we can go into Twitter and just get the information we need without having to constantly scroll that we can go into YouTube, watch the video we want, and then be able to leave easily. Even though people spend billions and billions of dollars engineering algorithms to get your eyes to stay, to get you to keep scrolling, to get you to watch the next video. That's implemented now in Netflix and games, that there's these, there's these addictive qualities that are being engineered into it and I'm constantly reminded of my weakness when I succumb to it. And I waste my time on YouTube. That's just a confession of my own personal sin. What we're told, when, after we're told, or right just before in Ephesians chapter 6, 
that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against people like the devil himself? How does he start it off? We're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're told to look to God and his strength. Because while he's the most powerful foe that this earth has to offer, he's easily defeated by God. A single word fell him. God does not only call us to look at his proven capabilities, his ability that he just proved that he's able to humble absolutely anyone, but he shows us that God is the one who's in control, that our future is in God's hand when God predicts the whole course of human history. Ironically, God's the first prophet, and he, de he delivers his very first word to Satan. And he tells them of the whole course of human history in that between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Well, actually, we're not going to get to that part yet. We're just going to do 15a right now, that God predicts the whole course of human history. Once again, we encounter the same sort of dynamic. That there is a physical level that they're dealing with, but also there are broader implications. There is a sense in which God has put the conflict, and notice that God's the one who put the conflict, the enmity, the hostility between Satan and the woman. There's a sense in which, in general... All humanity has been pitted against Satan. Satan is the enemy of every human being. Despite his allurements, despite the picture of friendliness, of putting before us things that are appetizing to us, this, because of this enmity we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11... That Satan has to disguise himself as an angel of light to deceive people. What's the point? The point is, is that God has put within general humanity that we still want what's good. We still want what's true. The problem is we seek for it in all the wrong places. We're like sin addicts. We see, you know, we can just try this drug one time and it'll make me happy. No one does drugs because they know it's going to ruin their life. That it's going to make them miserable. The reason why people do drugs is because of the benefits that it promises them. The goodness of it. And just like with all sin, the pleasure is like a vapor. It's real. It's in front of us. But as soon as we get our hands around it, it's gone. And Satan's intention the entire time is to destroy. And those intentions are made clear to those who are enslaved to sin. 
We see at times people's hearts being hardened more and more throughout life where they start desire and they become more and more friends with the world. But even then they're doing it because they want to, because they desire their own good. This is the nature of the dynamic between all humanity. But maybe more importantly, or maybe just to cap that off, just in case you're wondering about that, all you have to do is to think about what is Eve's name. Eve is named Eve in verse 21, or verse 20 rather, because she was the mother of all the living. Every human being has this enmity. And yet, we know there's a spiritual dynamic at play here. That's what should first clue us in on this is the fact that Satan is said to have offspring. Satan is an angel. Satan does, he's not a human being. Jesus tells us that in Matthew chapter 22 that Satan's, uh, Satan's, angels do not reproduce. They do not marry or are given into marriage. We know that the way that God has formulated nature to be that they produce after their kinds, that people with people produce people. Animals with other animals of the same kind produce other animals of the same kind. Kinds don't mix. Satan doesn't have any literal offspring with anyone. Who are Satan's offspring? Well, we're, we'll see it as we go throughout the book of Genesis. That there's a line in humanity, that there's two different kinds of humanity. In the words of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. We'll actually see this almost immediately in Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. 1 John chapter 3 tells us that Cain was of the evil one, for he murdered his brother. And then pointing out that Abel was righteous. We'll see that in different genealogies that we have. We'll have a genealogy of the seed of Satan working out his plans and his devices. And yet we'll see the seed of the woman just according to God's promise that he preserves a people after himself. But what's the root here? What's the distinguishing factor between one group of people and the other group of people? Is it that the seed of the woman are smarter, more humble, more kind people in and of themselves? No. We should know this. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're all by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That we're all slaves of sin, serving our father, the devil. The difference is God's work. The difference is God. He's the one who preserves humanity. This is why Jesus says, in order to be in his kingdom, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born of the woman, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. 
And it happens by faith in Jesus Christ. I could not word it better, this dynamic, than John chapter 8, verses 39 through 47. So I'm going to let Jesus speak for himself. Jesus told the people who were literally the genetic descendants of Abraham, literally the seed of the woman, the seed of promise. Jesus said in verse 31 of, of John chapter 8, he said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus' word to believers are. But then people kind of get ticked off at that. Verse 33, they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and never have been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. You are of your father, the devil. They go on after this to claim that their father is Abraham. But Jesus, he already acknowledged there that he knows that they're literally the biological descendants of Abraham. But that's not what makes children of Abraham. Let's bring this into New Testament terms. What makes a Christian a Christian? It's that God in his kindness has caused you to be born again. That he's given you eyes to see the truth of who he is. That you respond in faith. That you believe in him. You see Jesus for who he is. And he sets you free from your sin and your misery. What makes a child of Abraham, which makes a Christian... Is that we have Abraham-like faith. That we have faith in Jesus Christ. Have you been born into a Christian family? Have you been baptized into the church? Is that where your hope lies? If that's where that your hope lies, you truly are hopeless. Because Christ is the only hope for sinner, For sinners, plural. This is the offspring of the woman. This is the offspring of Satan. We reflect who our father is by who we imitate. And Christians who are born again are called constantly throughout Scripture to imitate their father in heaven. This is Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Speaking of Christ, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This is key. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because of you are sons, 
God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. How are we saved? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Philippians 2, verse 15. He calls Christians, he, sa- he calls them to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. When we think of that, we tend to think, oh, that's where our hope is. And being children of God and investing ourselves in our own strength to reflect God and follow after him. To be lights in a dark world, in a twisted and crooked generation. And that's why it's always important never to read a verse by itself. Because just two verses earlier, in verse 13 of Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2. We're told, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's lots of places that we could go in looking at this. Right now, we don't need to dive into the depths of what it means. This is what we're talking about here is the doctrine of election. The important here is to say... That things operate according to God's plan. That nothing thwarts his plan. That the reason why we believe is because of God working in our hearts. The praise and the glory belongs to him. It always does. There's nothing in ourselves that we look to or we're called to look to to find a reason for hope. We're called to look to God to find our whole source of hope in this world. But he then shifts from this prediction that does really trail the whole course of human history, seeing a conflict between this remnant people that are after God's own heart and those who are haters of God. What we see is that there's a dramatic shift here. He goes from the collective, the offspring... ...of the woman, the offspring of Satan, to the singular. Verse 15b. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God does not only promise to start this conflict, to preserve his people... ...but he promises a deliverer from the power of Satan... He promises that he will be victorious in the conflict that God here is setting up. That's where our hope lies. Our hope lies in God's promise deliver. And once again, we find ourselves in the position of Adam. We can try to put ourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes. Listening in. Hearing God's word of judgment, hearing God's capabilities, hearing that God knows the course of human history and that he's going to be at work in it. They hear that there's going to be someone 
who's going to strike or bruise Satan's head. And that Satan will strike his heel. You know, the purpose of revelation, the purpose of disclosing information, is not so that prophets could have a special experience. The reason why prophecy does not continue today is not because God does not have a personal relationship with his people. The purpose in Revelation is to disclose information to us about who he is and what he's done. Here what we have is a vague promise of someone who will do something that will kill Satan in his works while yet he will be struck himself. We know what the fulfillment of this prophecy is. It's in Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. That in many ways, in past times, the prophets spoke concerning different things. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. What we received in the New Testament is the fulfillment of this promise. And this helps us really to frame the whole of Jesus' own ministry. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, really help us in understanding this. We see that this is, this is how the book of Hebrews speaks about Jesus' ministry. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise took, partook of the same things... That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Rick Phillips said of this. That the timing and setting of this first good news message... ...make a vital statement about the Christian religion. If Christianity is about the coming of Christ... ...then the reason for his coming reveals the purpose of his gospel. The gospel was first preached in a scene of man's condemnation... ...under God's curse, the curse of death. The first promise of Jesus was spoken in a courtroom setting where man stood guilty before God. For this reason, as the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. What is the cure for our anxieties. Well, we have to be clear about what our biggest problem is. What do we need saving from? God's wrath upon our sin. God's curse that he's about to pronounce. Slavery to Satan and to doing his will. And the judgment that comes upon all those who are children of Satan. What is the hope that deals with our anxieties? It's simply God. God is the good news of Christianity. God's capabilities, 
God's governing of all of human history and in God's promises. It's in God himself. For when God makes this promise, he who is able to, by a word, lower the serpent, which we now see every day, is the same God who promised to deliver humanity. Who promised to undo this destruction that Satan had introduced into humanity. It is holy God. And where we want to see our hope most clearly, we can see how it was dealt with. In Jesus Christ's own death and resurrection, when he lived the life that we should have died and died the death that, he should have di- that he, we should have died. You get the picture. That's our hope. This is the mission which Jesus was sent on. Read the book sometime. Uh, the book of John sometime. Read the book. Read the Bible. You should do that. But also read the Gospel of John and see how many times that you see Jesus' own self-understanding of his mission that he was sent by his Father to achieve a particular mission. He was sent by his Father because his Father had a plan to redeem his people. That's where our hope lies, in God and God himself. Where does your hope lie? Does it lie in God and his character and his graciousness and his loving kindness and his goodness? Does it lie in Jesus' ability to save you according to the Father's plan as applied by the Holy Spirit? Anything else will never do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the cure. And that your cure for our sin and misery is not a suppression of the truth or not dealing with the reality of our situation, but it's dealing a full-orbed cure that deals with the problem at its root. It deals with the problem of the heart. The heart that desires to fall away from God. That desires the very sin that leads to our destruction. And we're thankful that our hope is not in anything about us. But it's wholly in you. For if our salvation is based on you and your abilities, in your plan, in your promises, then there's no way that we can be lost. Lord, we say with Martin Luther that when we look at ourselves, we can't imagine how we could be saved. But when we look to Christ, we cannot imagine how we could not be saved. For he is that good of a redeemer. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.